Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As we leave the European Union, we will forge a, forge a bold new positive role for ourselves in the world. And we will make Britain a country that works not for a privileged few, but for every one of us. That will be the mission of the government I lead. And together, we will build a better Britain. It's the morning of 24th June 2016. The results are in and the United Kingdom has voted to leave the European Union. On the steps of Downing Street, David Cameron announces his resignation as Prime Minister. In the race to replace him, Frontrunner Boris Johnson comes undone when his campaign chief Michael Gove announces that he will run as his own candidate on the grounds that he does not believe Johnson can do the job. One by one, the candidates self-destruct until only one is left standing. Theresa May, the overwhelming choice of the parliamentary party and the UK's longest-serving Home Secretary of modern times. May takes office pledging to prioritise social justice and to deliver Brexit but her first budget comes unstuck over proposed changes to national insurance contributions. Days later, despite having won landslide support in Parliament to trigger Article 50, she goes back on her pledge not to go for an early election, on the grounds that MPs are blocking Brexit. The polls predict a huge victory, and the local election results point that way too. But in the campaign that follows, Theresa May struggles badly on the campaign trail, and her manifesto alienates many voters. Come the election, instead of gaining seats, she loses 33, and with it, her parliamentary majority. May survives her election debacle and stays in office thanks to a confidence and supply deal with the Democratic Unionist Party. She even manages to negotiate a Brexit deal that takes the United Kingdom out of the European Court of Justice, the Common Agricultural Policy and the Common Fisheries Policy. But the deal doesn't pass muster among MPs and is defeated by a record-breaking margin. May brings her deal back to Parliament twice more and enters doomed cross-party talks in a bid to rescue it, but her efforts end in failure. After leading the party to crushing defeats in the local and European elections, May is forced out by the party, and Boris Johnson, the man she defeated in 2016, becomes Prime Minister. I'm John Elledge. And I'm Stephen Bush. Welcome to Prime Ministerial. So Theresa May is an odd one, as we'd expect through this series. And as we go back in time, we will reach people who we do not have strong impressions or feelings about. A prime minister who, in many ways, I felt in my journey of covering her felt quite similar to the journey a lot of people in the country took. And then I started out as someone who'd had a fairly good relationship with some of the people in her home office team, because, yeah, on the civil service end in particular, they had showed quite an intelligent idea of the things that would get a nice write-up in the New Statesman on stop and search, modern slavery, etc., etc. And I thought she came in as someone who was quite an effective operator and would run Downing Street very well. Then, fairly early on in her time in office, I started to go, oh, this is a bit odd, isn't it? This is a political approach and I'm not sure can work and seems quite likely to end in your ruination. She then went for that early election, showing her to be a very different politician to the one that she'd kind of been presented as. Yeah, the kind of weird thing about covering that election is it felt like watching the same process of, oh, I think I understand the type of person you like. I think you're quite good at this. I think you'll be able to be an effective leader. Watching the kind of country go, oh, are you a bit of a calamity? 
was kind of a slightly surreal thing. Your own experience in microcosm, like happening much quicker, but on a much bigger scale. A much bigger, yeah. It played out at a sufficient distance and I had gone on a similar journey myself and kind of gone, okay, but I'm clearly missing something. And I think that to me at least is the the verdict on Theresa May, because obviously from an ideological moral perspective, I have huge, huge objections to what she wanted to achieve. But I think the, the striking thing when we're considering her effectiveness in office is basically just the... She wasn't. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, she wasn't. I mean, I have a slightly different perspective. I'm not a lobby correspondent like you. I'm just a, a shouty person on the internet, really. My view of Theresa May was always pretty negative before I worked at the New States when I used to edit an education magazine where one of the issues that came up a lot was her policy as Home Secretary and international students. The policy was basically she didn't want any, which nobody in the education world liked because they're a nice cash cow for the university sector apart from being good for Britain's soft power. And that kind of set the tone for me. She just always seemed to have this slight narrowness, a sense of, you know, this is my community and this is everybody else. And she always felt to me like she was drawing a very strong line between those two. So I was always very, very poorly disposed towards her if i'm honest with you it was kind of a delight to see the world catch up with my negative opinion there i think the thing is though is like the immigration policies of cameron and then may and boris johnson still are all in my view deeply dislikable and awful but she was given a target she did a fairly effective job of running a basket case department that was destructive to the person who came after her had been destructive to many people before it i kind of think the home office career wouldn't have suggested someone who was quite so maladroit at being prime minister. The party management aspect, the salesman aspect. Because the weird thing, right, is, is ultimately, actually, from a policy perspective, this was quite an effective premiership, right? She successfully, despite the loss of her majority, despite being hemmed in on all sides, you know, the United Kingdom is a country where it is uniquely difficult to leave the EU, because our land border with the EU is a country where the shared policy of both British and Irish governments has been a huge degree of regulatory alignment in order to facilitate and create, often unsuccessfully in that period, a peaceful and open border between the two. And how you reconcile that with having a meaningful Brexit is quite difficult. But she successfully negotiated an exit deal, which would have taken us out of Fisheries policy, agriculture policy, free movement of people. Now, two of those things are things I like about EU membership, but they are all the only things that you know, realistically commanded any popular opposition to the project. She did successfully do all of that. So what you're saying is she was quite successful in finding a Brexit formula that was acceptable to the EU and seemed to deliver on the referendum but would not completely stuff the situation on the Irish border. And the difficulty was simply that she couldn't get it through Parliament. So I guess the question is whether the problem is Theresa May or whether it's the circumstances in which she found herself. So let's, let's talk to someone who, even more closely than yourself, is a follower of Conservative Party internal politics. And that's the Spectator's deputy political editor, Katie Balls. Katie, when did you first become aware of Theresa May as a potential future leader of the party, do you think? So Theresa May would be mentioned in various discussions about future leaders, but I think it's safe to say she was never that high up on the list. I think that if you're talking about another female leader, her name would come up, but there was this sense that probably the heir apparent, the person most likely was George Osborne, but he would have difficulties because even though he might be David Cameron's uh, close confidant, there was a question as to how popular he would be with A, the electorate, and potentially the Tory grassroots. So there was always seen as if there were two people likely to take the crown from David Cameron. It was Boris Johnson or George Osborne. I think Theresa May had impressed. Home Secretary is, uh, the Home Office is seen as the graveyard of ambition. It's a risky place. And I think the fact that she had such a long tenure there meant that she, her star did rise to some degree. Obviously, when she became Prime Minister, some of her legacy there actually came into question. Some people thought perhaps she just had a lucky run there in terms of the crime stats. But when you actually got to that leadership campaign, I think few would have actually expected her very early on to get it. I think she had several things work in her favour, such as the fact that you had the implosion of the two most likely vote leave candidates and George Osborne wasn't in the running. So I think she was almost an accidental prime minister. She clearly was someone who managed to get through that leadership contest and she managed to put on a strong showing to get enough MPs. But she was partly there through the 
mistakes of others in messing up their own campaigns. So Katie, take us through like your impressions of May in like those first sunny days of 2016. Well, I think it's worth pointing out she had one of the longest honeymoon periods of any Conservative Prime Minister. Thatcher's was shorter, David Cameron's was shorter. She really defied uh, expectations in the sense that everyone kept saying, it's just a honeymoon period, the public are going to turn against her soon. But I think when she first stood up the steps of Downing Street and she gave her speech on the burning injustices, it did seem to strike a chord with the nation at large. She saw that reflected in the poll bounce and it felt as though she was taking the Conservatives to a different territory or a different part than they were on with David Cameron. So the sense that she talked about, you know, the gist about managing left behinds. And you got the sense that she believed, and I think this was hinted at quite heavily, that David Cameron's brand of conservatism perhaps had been a bit of a democracy and had been privileged people trying to talk about big societies but not actually bring in former Labour voters, uh, people like that across the electorate. And she was someone who wanted to take back conservatism and put it to people who perhaps lower down the food chain in terms of their incomes than were attracted to David Cameron when he was going for Lib Dem voters. And I think initially people were very positive that this was going to be one of those groundbreaking moments for the Conservative Party. There are comparisons to Thatcher, not just because of similar politics. In many ways, it wasn't at all that you look at how it in the economy, but it might be one of those seismic shifts in where the Conservative Party was going. Now, I think there are warning signs fairly early on that everything was not going great in the sense that it was very control freakery government and I think there were a few points where it appeared as though Theresa May didn't really have the answers she had sound bites Brexit means Brexit and she had things to say but because they were holding so much information back I think there were some who hoped there was a grand plan that just hadn't quite been revealed yet and she managed to get away with it for a bit but clearly the point where it really shifted was the general election. But I think there was something about how people saw Theresa May. So when she first came up through and, you know, Vicar's daughter, there was a sense that she was a trustworthy politician. She wasn't showy. She wasn't flashy like her predecessors. And when she was in the leadership contest, she spoke about how she didn't hang out late in the commons bars. That wasn't her. And at the time, it was seen as a big asset. People were like, that's great. It's great you didn't spend all your time boozing and climbing up the ladder. This is brilliant. We're someone who actually just is very serious. By the end of her premiership, it became clear that actually that was one of her fatal flaws. She didn't know how to communicate. She wasn't used to bringing people with her. But there was this sense that she was an honest politician. And I think probably one of the initial points where it started to go a bit wrong was she said repeatedly she wasn't going to have an early election. And then she goes on her walking holiday and decides she is. And initially you didn't see a, a rejection of that. But I do think it ebbed away at this idea that she she was different to previous politicians. As you say, like early on in her premiership, she kind of made a lot of noise about, you know, the current settlement wasn't working for everybody. There was people being left behind. This was obviously in the Brexit vote. This was a factor. She was obviously keen on things like industrial strategy. There was quite a radical shift in, in economic priorities from the previous conservative orthodoxy. But it sort of never really went anywhere. And one of the reasons for that, it seems to me, is because you can't do a lot of that stuff at a time of austerity. So I guess my question is, like, was austerity the big barrier here or was that just talk? I think the big barrier was the fact that she lost a majority. And it's perhaps a, a basic way of looking at it. But some of the things that she wanted to do. So, for example, you had the fact that they had this lock in, in the budget and that I think Philip Hammond found himself unable to do many things because of that. So there was a need to have a general election. But you look at the policies in that Conservative manifesto, the bulk of the Tory party were horrified by some of them. The energy price cap. People said, well, that's an Ed Miliband policy. And we've gone from being a low tax party arguing for free markets to almost a Miliband-esque place in the economy. So I think that she was far apart from some in her party on that. And I don't think where she sat was the majority view. And therefore, when she lost her majority and she had to ditch many of these things, it wasn't as though you had a group of Conservative MPs saying, oh, we must go back to being Labour light on these issues. Now, we're seeing with the current Conservative Party this effort to spend more, but I think it's done in a different way than Theresa May pitched it. Boris Johnson talks about boosterism. I think with Theresa May, 
Lots of reforms weren't that popular in the Tory party to begin with, but people were happy to go along with it on the grounds that you were going to get a massive majority. People were saying triple figures, so give her the benefit of the doubt. And I think as soon as it became clear that not only did she not have a triple majority, and I think she would have had trouble even if she got a majority of 10, given the expectation. But as soon as she completely lost that, I just think support for her ideas went. And she also lost her two closest aides, uh, Nick Timothy, Fiona Hill, now honoured by Theresa May but it added to the sense that I think she relied on advisors quite heavily for her vision at points and as soon as they were gone it felt as though Mayism as we were beginning to almost get a taste of it almost evaporated. When you're talking about yeah the kind of lack of a sort of coherent vision I think to me the definitive Theresa May interview in terms of the kind of revelation and there actually just wasn't enough substance there was actually the interview that the spectator did where she complained that the civil service kept being like well what is a just about managing how much does that person earn who are they and she was basically like well look a just about managing you know it's obvious it's it's essentially everyone and it's just like an electoral coalition that targets everyone is quite effective but a political economy which basically goes we want policies that help everyone very rapidly runs out of road and i think yeah like it's also really easy to forget just how constrained they were by like the ban on new taxes all of the stuff in the 2015 manifesto it feels to me at least the 2017 election was inevitable and calling it was the right approach but i mean i remember you were one of the first people to write at the time that it was not uh, being conducted very well. Why, in your opinion, was it being conducted poorly? I mean, it was just a very bad campaign on many levels. So obviously Labour very quick to say this is an awful campaign, the Tories are rubbish, left commentators were sceptical. But just purely on the basis of the fact you only had one person, it was all about Theresa May, if it quite clear quite quickly that she wasn't a natural communicator because she hadn't had the full leadership contest when she came to be prime minister it was uh, expedited it was quickened because Andrea Leadsom dropped out that hadn't really been tested of her she can do big set piece speeches she struggles thinking off the cuff she struggles relaxing on the one show and I, and I think there are several flaws there but the point where I think you could tell it actually gone wrong was when they launched the Conservative Party manifesto. Now, lots of people say there are multiple problems with this election for the Tories, and some saw it as a verdict on Brexit. Personally, I think it was that manifesto which had had such little input. You had cabinet ministers on the way to the launch reading the manifesto for the first time. It was a very bizarre scenario. And then you had the dementia tax, quickly dubbed that. And you saw how Theresa May and her team, they weren't adept at changing their tack or moving to go with catastrophes or problems that could become catastrophes. And then I think the point when you just realised it was really going very badly was when Theresa May spoke about fox hunting. And you thought, why in this tightly controlled campaign where you're refusing to do many debates, you're refusing many appearances, and you're having a very carefully curated crowd, have you somehow, at one of your tightly controlled events, we managed to ask about fox hunting and B say that you personally support it rather than just the usual Tory line, which was, we'll have a free vote and see what happens. So I think that just seemed to be a political deafness. But I think the reason I thought it was going to end badly, whatever happened, when I first wrote about it was, there was such high expectation in the Conservative Party that this was going to be a triple-figure majority that at the time I said, even if the Tories win this election, Theresa May will lose it because it was very hard to see how she would get anywhere close to what they wanted. And you could see Tory MPs turning quite quickly against her because they didn't support the philosophy to begin with. Obviously, the election night 2017 was a lot of fun in the New Statesman office. It was very much like the bit in Return of the Jedi with the dancing Ewoks, I think. How big a shock did it come for you guys? Did you see it coming or was that sort of the 10.01pm moment a real blow from the spectator's point of view? I think blow would be the wrong word. I think everyone has this image that perhaps at the spectator everyone was excited about a conservative majority. I don't, I don't think there was anything like that. I think when the result came in, to be honest, the campaign was so bad by that point. I had an agreement which basically I was in charge of the overnight coverage. So... If the majority was, I think, below 15 or above a certain amount, then it was time to basically wake people up and get people more on side because it was going to be a historic moment. So I don't think there was this expectation. I mean, I do remember quite precisely, though, that when that news broke, we all thought, let's just get covering it. But there was one person who had, who had bet 
on the Tories getting a majority, who suddenly saw this exit poll and I was actually more worried about <laughs> their personal fortunes as the day went on. But there were definitely figures who thought, even though this was a bad campaign, she will definitely get a majority. I think it was clearly a shock result. I do remember being at a dinner earlier on the night before the exit poll and hearing that Kensington was in trouble. And I've had a few people on the ground at Kensington saying, we don't think the Tories have got Kensington. And I said this on the table I was on and everyone just laughed. It did not seem as though this was a party that was about to lose what was seen as a Tory stronghold. More widely, for example, I remember the Carlton Club placed lots of Conservatives saying they were going to have this special offer of people who want to celebrate on the night. And I do think this sense of complacency in some quarters uh, created this dangerous atmosphere. I remember there was a YouGov poll which um, very accurately predicted the hung parliament. But also, I mean, I remember writing something earlier on the campaign, which was that the CCHQ internal polling suggested there was going to be a hung parliament. And at the time, you know, when you hear something and you think, don't want to go out on a limb on this piece of information. So I remember writing it at the time, but about five paragraphs down in a piece rather than deciding this was going to be what I would try and be remembered for. I think there were red flags. I still think it was a shock to many that she completely lost the majority. And I was surprised because I didn't think this was a good campaign, but you, you sensed that they might have been able to bring it back to, to a small majority. In an odd way, I feel for a lot of people covering it, regardless of how they felt about it, I think a lot of people were weirdly relieved simply because I this would have called into question my own ability to accurately call a campaign if um, they had flopped about in that manner and it mattered. You kind of talked about control freakery. Do you think that ultimately what the 2017 election revealed is that Theresa May did not have the disposition to be a successful political leader in the 21st century? I don't think that she's a natural leader. It's interesting. I think Theresa May is a very good constituency MP. For example, I think that when it comes to what people value in a constituency MP, so someone who actually goes to their seat, which is usually a good start, but has time for their constituents, she she would do very well. I think she is ultimately a public servant. Perhaps there is a time when it would be fine to have a public servant as a leader, and in a way all prime ministers should be, but I think she is primarily a public servant as somebody who feels a great sense of duty than someone who feels comfortable leading. And I think particularly with Brexit and everything that comes with it, you need someone who can bring people with you. That's not Theresa May, it's not her strong point. I don't think she's someone who can naturally relate to people. I mean, you hear stories of when people went in to see her and they said, I don't know why I was asked in because... She seemed to have nothing to say. So I think she struggles with that. And it just meant that she was the wrong leader for this time. Uh, And I think that quickly became apparent. And I think had the Tory leadership contest ran out for the full length as it was supposed to, I do think some of these weaknesses would have probably come to the surface sooner. I don't know if that would have stopped her from becoming Prime Minister or not. It could have. But it also could have been something which meant that people were more aware of how to work it. For example, you might not have had an entire election campaign which was supposed to be focused on just the candidate rather than the cabinet. I mean, I think the really clear thing from that conversation, which, I mean, is unsurprising, but, yeah, it's useful to have it confirmed, is this is very much a premiership with a before and after, a period running up to the election in which the default assumption among MPs, even if they didn't like many aspects of her agenda, was this is a premiership and it's a thousand-year proposition, so we'd better be quiet and do what it wants, to a period of chaos and weakness afterwards. So I think the useful thing to do is probably to talk to someone who was, you know, a witness or arguably victim of the 2017 election and then was right at the heart of things during the struggle for survival afterwards, her chief of staff and former MP for Croydon Central, Gavin Barwell. Obviously, the 2017 election was quite a significant event for you personally, as well as the party. But, you know, looking back, what's your take on what happened there? I was in a meeting and my private secretary called me out and said the Prime Minister just announced there's going to be an election. And, you know, I was immediately very worried because I'd only held my seat by 165 votes in 2015 and it didn't it didn't really matter that we were a long way ahead in the polls demographically my seat was moving against us all the time so even though the national picture looked really encouraging I thought I'm still going to be in for a real fight in my seat actually when the campaign started uh, the response was good I think if you'd you'd held the general election a week into the election I'd have won by a few thousand in Croydon Central and that was the view of the Labour activists that we were talking to as well um, but really, from around the time of um, the manifesto launch, 
you know, there was a clear shift in public opinion. And from that point on, we knew we were in for the fight of our lives. And so the, the, the result was not a huge surprise when it came. And it was then like I had a very bizarre sort of 36 hours of my life. I got home from the count at about 6 a.m. maybe on the Friday morning. And at that point, I'd been up for more than 24 hours. I got some sleep, woke up late Friday afternoon and text messages from friends saying commiserations and journalists saying, come and tell us what you thought of the election campaign. So I decided just to do two interviews. I did a Today program one and a BBC TV news one on the Saturday morning. And as I came out of the TV studios, having just given my verdict on the campaign, my phone rang and it was uh, Downing Street switchboard saying, the Prime Minister wants to talk to you. So I was like, okay, well, I guess she's phoning around the 30-odd MPs who've lost their seats to, to commiserate. And that's exactly how the conversation started. But she then sort of said, anyway, look, um, I've got a favour to ask of you. I'd like you to come and be my chief of staff. And I was completely taken aback. I would say in terms of how we then worked together for the next two and a bit years, we had a critical conversation that Saturday afternoon. I went down to see her in Sonning and we must have spoken for quite a few hours. Uh, And I was very conscious that normally the person who is chief of staff knows the principal very well. And I didn't have that relationship and sort of quickly needed to get to a point where we understood each other and trusted each other. So we started off with, I wanted to understand why she thought the election had gone wrong. But then also as a sort of getting to know each other exercise, I did this thing where I sort of said, look, I'm going to tell you some things you've done that made me really proud as a conservative backbench MP. And I'm going to tell you a few things you said that I didn't agree with, just so you know where I come from. And so I can better understand what you meant by those things. So we had a really, really good discussion that afternoon. And I, I would say that did a lot to sort of set up our relationship once we were in the job. What was her, her feeling about what had gone wrong? So I think she felt that she had not run the campaign she wanted to run. And that's kind of, I suppose, to your listeners, that's a kind of slightly weird thing to say because she's the party leader. But she'd been convinced to run this campaign about strong and stable, essentially. Whereas I think her own instincts would have been to focus the campaign around the original speech she gave outside number 10 when she became prime minister about a country that works for everyone and i think she also she has she has a very in principle view of debates during the election campaign which is that they suck up all the oxygen and prevent anything else being discussed and it all just becomes about the debates but nonetheless i think her view was that it was it was the wrong decision not to take part despite her in principle objections to them so she she basically felt she had not run the campaign that she'd wanted to do to come back to your original question I think she was right to call the election. I think she could see that getting Brexit through was going to be incredibly difficult and she needed a stronger position in Parliament to do it. So I think the choice was the right choice. The execution of the campaign was wrong. I mean, in terms of the sort of EU negotiations issue. When the exit poll came out, you know, David Davis was very much of the view that this meant that the leave result itself might be imperiled, although some of his subsequent actions, it's sort of hard to reconcile with that immediate insight. How much did you feel the Brexit negotiations had to change to account for what had happened in 2017? I have never talked about that to David, so I don't know what he was hinting at. I mean, the, the clear sort of democratic mandate to deliver the result, I don't think that had been imperiled by the election because actually both the main parties had stood on a manifesto that was in one way or other about respecting the result. But clearly the parliamentary arithmetic had got a lot harder. And increasingly, as I went through the job, I was of the view that you've got to take account of the numbers in parliament. If you're in government, but you don't have a majority in parliament, ultimately parliament is going to have a big say on how these things play out. And you know, with the benefit of hindsight, if I was looking back on what we did, I would have probably tried to look at the sort of cross-party route a bit earlier than we did. One of the things EU leaders would often say to Theresa was, well, look, we're in, you know, we're in coalition with our main opponent. Why don't you just talk to Corbyn and you know, if you've got problems on your own side, sort it out cross-party. But it, it's, it doesn't come as easy in the British system. Because I think one of the slightly weird things about the current state of the Brexit debate is both sides have an interesting kind of obfuscating the fact that a deal was successfully reached that... In terms of what the referendum campaign was about, it's quite hard to make a case that it is not delivering on those promises such as it is. Why do you think that the deal became so unpopular so quickly? That is a, is a good question. And I think there are several things I would say uh, out of that. First of all, if Theresa were sitting here talking to you, I'm sure she would say that at the outset, she thought the really hard thing would be getting a, an acceptable deal. 
and that actually once you'd got a deal, you would be able to get it through Parliament. And it turned out to be the opposite way around to that. I completely agree with you. Like from, from my perspective, I don't understand at all the argument that the deal is not Brexit. Uh, I perfectly accept that there are people that want some different version of Brexit and they say, well, that's not, that's not the type of Brexit I like. But the idea that if you, the UK is no longer sitting in the European Council, has no MEPs, has no European Commissioner, is not in the single market, is not in the CAP, is not in the CFP, that that isn't leaving the European Union, I don't get that. And I've never got that argument. Why did it become so toxic? I think on the Conservative side, the arguments that were presented in the election campaign were not necessarily those that some people actually feel strongly about. I don't remember anybody raising customs with me on the doorstep during the referendum campaign when I was going around campaigning. But actually, customs has become the sort of kernel of the issue and the most difficult thing to try and solve. Then on the Labour side as well, or on the opposition side as well, I mean, looking on both sides, and my overall verdict on what happened is... We were never able to close down one of the options and create a binary choice. So in other words, some people voted against the deal because they either thought if we shout louder, we can get a better deal or we could just leave with no deal at all. And we were never able to convince them that that wasn't possible because Parliament wouldn't support it. And then another group of people, increasing numbers of them, wanted a second referendum as a way, hopefully, of overturning the decision of the first referendum. And we were never able to convince them that there was a real risk of getting no deal, and therefore they wouldn't compromise. Do you think it was a failure of political leadership not to go for the referendum on the withdrawal agreement option? So Theresa felt really strongly about that. It's an issue that caused me a little bit of grief because there was a Sunday Times story that said I was in favour of a second referendum. I've never been in favour of a second referendum. But I had come to the conclusion that we may have got to a point where the only way of getting the deal through was to concede one. Because actually... I mean, look, one of, the, one of the sort of funny things, when we finally got around to the cross-party negotiations, one of the funny early exchanges is that Keir Starmer was pushing us on a second referendum. We were like, Keir, if, if we were prepared to concede a second referendum, there's a whole bunch of MPs that would vote for our deal without any other changes if we just added a second referendum. So we wouldn't be here sitting, talking to you about policy concessions if we were willing to, to concede that. And Theresa just had a very strong principled view that she didn't like what had happened in many other EU countries that people had been asked a question given an answer and basically told well that's not the right answer we're going to ask you the question again Uh, and she felt that it was important that you implemented what people had said first time around you know if you're saying to me tactically was there a way out of this if we'd offer a second referendum yeah absolutely and she she knew that route was there but she had a very in principle view that that wasn't something that she thought was the right and it was partly an in-principle thing. She's also very worried about the read across to, to Scotland. Uh, and you know, you're both well aware that she's a very strong unionist. And so that was a factor as well in her thinking about that. What was she like to work for? I got an exemption on our last day in Downing Street from the civil service code. And I was allowed to go and do an interview as a civil servant. I did a Today programme interview. And the thing I said then, which I, I would very much stand by, is if you do my job, I basically gave pretty much every waking hour of my life for two years to doing that job. And you're never going to agree with the person you're working for on every single detailed bit of every policy. So to me, the most important test is, do you believe the person you're working for is doing what they think is the right thing for the country, not the thing that's politically easy or convenient or helpful to them? And she passed that test always with flying colours. So the first thing I would say about her is she is an incredibly diligent, hardworking person and she's got a real sense of public service and sort of duty. And in that sense, she was a privilege to work for. In private, she's much more sort of lighthearted and fun. Quite often when she's doing media interviews, she's quite sort of guarded and you don't necessarily get to see the real person. But actually, you know, she was both a privilege in that sense to work for, but she was also good fun. That is not something that necessarily came across in her public image. I mean, is there a reason why she presented herself in one way in public and, and differently in private? Or is it just that she's not a great communicator? Or, you know, what's, what's, your, what's your read on that? So I think that she has quite a traditional view of the job, that it's about getting across the detail, about making the right decisions. And she didn't enjoy uh, maybe some of the sort of communication side of the job uh, in the way that some of her predecessors probably felt more natural doing some of that. 
I think sometimes when you see her giving an interview, she's, she's on her guard because she's sort of thinking, well, this journalist is trying to trip me up, essentially. And one of the things I used to say was, look, you're the Prime Minister, you make the line to take. So just answer the questions as you, you know, the answers that you want to give. And then it's my job to make that the government's line to take. But she's a really good sort of grassroots candidate. If you see her in a constituency, you know, I can't imagine we've had a Prime Minister who more frequently went out just knocking doors as a constituency MP. And that's the side of politics she likes, the sort of face-to-face engagement people. And sometimes you pick that up, I think, on some of the visits she did. You know, there's the famous image of her in Salisbury when she'd gone down. Um, sort of fist bumping the teenager who was there. But that kind of sort of interaction with individual people when they came into events at number 10 or when she was out doing events, that came naturally to her. I don't think she enjoyed the sort of head-to-head interviews with journalists so much, and probably that showed. Was, I'm trying to think of a polite way of putting it, was there a temperamental barrier for Theresa May personally that made it difficult for her to reach across the aisle in a way it perhaps wouldn't have been for David Cameron or Tony Blair? No, I don't think so. She wasn't averse to getting support from the opposition, but she wanted to get strong support from her own side because her view was the long-term stability of the government was only there if she could carry the broad mass of Conservative and DUP MPs with you. And I think if you look back over history, any party can deal with a small group of rebels who disagree, even on a big issue like this. But what you can't do is sort of cleave your party in half and rely on opposition support on one issue and then think everything is going to go back to normal on other issues afterwards. So I think she had a natural instinct that she wanted to get the broadest possible support on her own side, but she wasn't at all averse to trying to appeal to people on the other side. What was the atmosphere in the, in the office at Downing Street? Like, did it feel like a sort of very solid team? Did you feel like you were all sort of working on a mission together, even if you were sometimes against a large chunk of your own parliamentary party? Like, how did it feel? Yeah, so look, I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of is I think we created a good place for people to work. And I think if you spoke to other people in the political team or the civil servants that worked in number 10 at that time, you know, it was a very loyal, supportive team. It was very uh, aware of the pressure that the Prime Minister was under and wanting to do its very best for her. Look, I think the danger you can get into when you're in that kind of job and in that kind of environment is it sort of becomes a little bit of a bunker. So if I was thinking of tactical mistakes we made as opposed to the sort of big strategic questions about whether you whether you should ever have agreed to phasing in the Brexit negotiations, for example. But a tactical mistake, um, you'll probably both remember an occasion where Theresa went outside number 10 and gave a statement that was basically sort of saying MPs need to get their act together. And that was the result of her and all of us being incredibly frustrated that Parliament kept telling us the things it didn't agree with, but was totally unable to tell us anything that it would actually support. But it it was a silly thing to do. Sometimes in life you have to look at things from other people's point of view and they were frustrated with us and they were taking pelters from a lot of their constituents and they felt the Prime Minister sort of criticising them that way was just making their lives more difficult. So that was an example, if you like, of how the pressure from the outside leads to a kind of groupthink and actually you do something that wasn't in your sort of best long-term interests. There were a couple of those kind of statements to the nation outside number 10, you know, lots of debates as to whether the lectern had the... Yeah, <laughs> had the what's the word I'm looking for? The, the crest on it. The yeah. crest on it. Yeah, was that a conscious strategy to try and sort of speak to the public over over the heads of Parliament? And if yeah. so, why? Yeah. So look, sometimes I think it worked really well. So an example of one where we felt it worked really well for us was after Salzburg, where you know I think Tusk behaved pretty poorly towards the Prime Minister, and I think she. Uh, she was able to give a really sort of strong statement when she came back, very strong support pretty much across the political spectrum in this country and from the media. And actually the EU leaders felt Tusk had gone so far and so that sort of worked for us very well. And there were various occasions when, if you like, we tried to go over the heads of MPs to the public to try and make the case to them. But you can't get around the fact that when a government doesn't have a majority in Parliament, ultimately it's those... 600 and odd MPs in Parliament that have the decisive voices and it's them you've got to persuade. And yes, if you can if you can shift public opinion a bit, you can put some pressure on them, but ultimately it's their votes that count. Obviously, even more than, than most, Theresa May's premiership was shaped by the time in which it happened and the circumstances she found herself in. But if she'd been PM at a different time and had, you know, a small but comfortable majority and had a bit more freedom of manoeuvre. What do you think she would have liked to have done? What would, what would her dream premiership have looked like? So I think, I think the speech outside number 10, the first speech she gave on the first day, answers that question for you. The two things she had with her at the outset 
were first of all sort of economically a country that works for everyone. She had this sense that, you know, in macro terms, our economy had done well for a number of years, either side of the sort of Great Depression, but that London and the sort of inner southeast had sucked up the vast majority of that growth and it hadn't been shared more equally around the country. And the sort of the whole concept of the modern industrial strategy is something she feels really strongly about. And then the other thing, and I wouldn't just look at her time as Prime Minister, but also look at her time as Home Secretary. And I think this comes out of her genuinely enjoying being a constituency MP, is that when she met people and she felt there was an injustice there, she would sort of take up that cause. So whether it was Stop and Search or whether it was Hillsborough uh, or whether in her time as Prime Minister it was you know, the work she did on the race disparity audit or whether the stuff that she's done on sort of human trafficking. I, I think she would have liked to do a lot more on that sort of burning injustices agenda that she identified in that speech outside number 10. And I think that's something that, that really motivates her. One thing I, I sort of wonder off the back of that, though, is where things like the, the hostile environment fit into this, or the clampdown on, on international students. Uh, policies that were, I mean, obviously both of those are, are quite sort of anti-immigration policies, but they also kind of like feel to me like they're sort of drawing a hard line between our people and other people. I, I sometimes find it difficult to sort of reconcile that with the idea of a woman who's very motivated by the concept of injustice. One of the difficulties that your trade has is in order to explain to people what's going on, you have to try and fit people into boxes and say, well, this, this, is, this person's in this sort of space or this person's in this sort of space. And actually, most politicians are a bit more complicated than that. So I, I think if you take the two specific things you mentioned, I would draw a distinction between them. Because a hostile environment is actually about trying to address people that are here illegally. And personally, you know, I said to you earlier in the interview, if you work for someone's chief of staff, you're not going to agree with them on everything. I am more liberal on immigration than Theresa May is, but I agree with her on that. I actually think if you want public confidence in an immigration system that is going to allow significant numbers of people to come here that have the skills that we want as a country or to come here uh, as asylum seekers seeking sanctuary, it's very important that people have confidence in the system and don't believe that as well as that, there's a whole load of people that can come into the country illegally and then find it very easy to stay here. Now, having said that, there is a very important caveat, and if Theresa was here, she would want to say this, which is clearly what happened is that those policies affected people who were here legally and they shouldn't have affected. And she's apologised for that and it's something she feels very strongly about. But I would draw a distinction between that and student policy where people like myself that have a slightly different view on the issue will probably take a different view on that. And you've seen the current government has changed the policy on that. She was Home Secretary for six years and she had responsibility for delivering the policy that David Cameron put in the manifesto in terms of reduction from hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands. And she worked very hard to try and do that. And she feels, I think, quite strongly that although immigration is a good for the country, it is important that it's controlled and at a level that is enjoys public support. And it's probably an issue, if we're honest, where there's fairly widespread public support for what she thinks, but opinion within Westminster is a bit different. But you're right, if you're trying to draw a picture of her as a sort of Tory moderniser on many of these issues, on that issue, she maybe has slightly more traditional conservative views. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. So, have you changed your views on whether Theresa May was an effective Prime Minister and just a victim of circumstance or not? I think if it's actually slightly hardened or, you know, clarified or perhaps changed my view on her. The thing I basically struggle to get away from 
the longer one looks at the detail of the withdrawal agreement, right? If that's not successful in honouring of the referendum result, the referendum result cannot be successfully honoured. I have some sympathy with that position, but yes. This is, I think, then the big question on which Theresa May, effective or ineffective, because as someone on the ineffective side, I don't subscribe to the view that Brexit was only ever going to end in a sense of disillusionment and betrayal. I think if they had been led by someone who had ever tried to argue for the withdrawal agreement beyond a kind of it's my deal or no deal, it's my deal or no Brexit, if you don't like it, I'll shut you in this building until you vote for it, then I think that deal would have been more popular. It's striking to me that you poll the deal, the deal does very badly. You poll the the components of the deal and the deal people kind of broadly accept it. And that to me is why the kind of case of she was a, you know, a victim of, of what had happened before her is where it falls down. Because actually the effectiveness at getting a deal, you know, the kind of effectiveness in some ways of being the prime minister were completely undermined and destroyed by the ineffectiveness of being the prime minister, winning consent for her programme, arguing for what she was doing, explaining to the country and taking it on a journey. So my position on a lot of this stuff for a while has been that what should logically have happened in the summer of 2016 is the new prime minister stood up and said, well, we voted to leave the European Union, but it was quite narrow. The country is very divided. The message I am taking from this is that we should be in the economic structures, but not in the political structures that may lead to a country called Europe. Oh, look, we're now a big version of Norway. And that sort of feels to me like the kind of natural result of, of where we end up. And... I think the reason it didn't happen in the summer of 2016 is because Theresa May, whether because she feels this is a message from the British people or whether it's because of her own positions, felt that the key message of the debate was freedom of movement has to end, did not think that Norway was an option. So we had to get this bespoke deal. So I'm kind of shifting my position on that and wondering if could she have got that bespoke deal through that did do everything that seemed necessary under the circumstances if only she hadn't had that election. There are two reads of the 2017 election. There's read one which goes, the huge defeat showed that she needed a much bigger majority in order to get Brexit done. And the problem was not the calling of it, but the conduct of it. Then there's reading two, which goes, actually, the reason why the cross-party majority for Brexit eroded is that when the Article 50 vote happened, you had a situation in which Labour MPs feared a cataclysmic defeat, particularly Labour MPs in leave uh, voting seats. And so the, their political priority was to be seen to be working hard to do Brexit. And it is only the uncertain election result which opened up the idea for people that Brexit could be stopped. And then without the election, then you can pass the deal. And... The difficulty I have is I didn't know the answer to that at the start of this journey, and I realise I still don't quite know which I think is the correct case. And I think this is where the argument about her sense of people like me and, and, and you know, the, the opposition made her a uniquely bad prime minister for this time in any set of circumstances, right? You know, in Steve Richards' brilliant book, The Prime Ministers, he sets out a series of things and he thinks prime ministers ought to be able to do, and one of them is to be a teacher. And we see this in very different ways, with very different styles. That is true of Cameron, Wilson, Blair, Brown, Thatcher. May made no effort to reach across the yeah. aisle and bring the other side along with her. Is that what you're saying? I don't even think it's about reaching across the aisle, right? Because I, to be honest, agree with her analysis that if the 2016 referendum was about anything, it was about some very specific policy aims, free movement, fishing, agriculture. And those are the things that you have to do to actually enact the result. However, when did Theresa May ever advocate for that as an end destination? There are plenty of results where it's basically like, you know, well, Brexit must be honoured because there was a vote. But Brexit is such a huge direction because it mean everything from Norway to Switzerland to Turkey to Ukraine to Canada. She never at any point went... Yeah, we have voted to leave. The leave vote is about X, Y, Z. Our political and strategic aims about on the island of Ireland are PQR. Therefore, our destination is. And this failure as a communicator does tie in with a failure at the 2017 election. Really. Yeah. She, she just couldn't bring the country along with her vision because she couldn't spell out what that vision was. I have to say one thing about the 2017 election that does stay with me and has stayed with me throughout the journey of this episode is it was incredibly funny. She called an election campaign with a 20-point lead and lost a majority. That's, that's brilliant. That's never going away. They can't take that away from us. It's comic brilliance. Yeah, will, I think, 
perhaps never be equaled? Well, I'm obviously, you know, a bit biased on this one. Let's let's ask some, some people who are a bit closer to it for their final thoughts on Theresa May and her legacy. Gavin Barwell. How do you think her reputation will be seen, you know, in the future? Look, I think most people, there is a sort of respect for her based on what I was saying earlier. People think she was trying to do the right thing. You know, she was trying to do what she thought was the right thing. She is motivated by public service. I think that shone through. And, and one of the things that surprised me about the job is I thought, well, I'm going from a very sort of visible, I'm an MP, I'm a minister, to something that's a sort of back office job. But because you're often, even though you don't say anything, you're on camera because you're walking just behind the Prime Minister, I was surprised at how much in the job people would just stop me in the supermarket or on the tube or in the park with my kids or whatever. And they were generally sort of felt that it was an incredibly hard time to be Prime Minister and just wanted to sort of say to her, you know, keep at it, stick at it, I know it's difficult. So I think... There is a level of respect there among the public for her trying to get this very difficult thing done. You can't get round the fact that she was unable to deliver the deal that she negotiated. I mean, that is a historical fact that is not going to change. Other things that she's done that will be seen as very important decisions, the net zero decision, which is actually one of the last things she did as Prime Minister, but that is a big long-term decision that will have sort of profound implications for public policy going forward. Katie, do you think she'll be remembered more sympathetically than she's perhaps thought of at the moment? So Theresa May decided that the best way to pass a Brexit deal was to try and find compromise. And when we talk about her, oh, she was reaching out. I mean, it is worth pointing out she also came up with some quite non-compromise statements. You know, no deal is better than a bad deal, citizens of nowhere. There were times it didn't feel like she was trying to bring everyone with her. But I think she eventually came to the conclusion she didn't want to go for a no deal Brexit. It's not something she would do because of the union. And I think that in that she tried to, you know, bring other MPs in. Eventually, she spoke to Labour. Some people said she could have done it quicker. But I think it's quite clear that in terms of where her party sits on Brexit, she was actually pushing for a compromise. Now, how will history judge her? Uh, I mean, she says, you know, compromise shouldn't be a dirty word. There are some that might compare her approach with her successes, depending on how it goes. I think that she had a probably a plan that perhaps over time will be judged as something which had, had more reason to it. But I do think it depends a bit on that. On domestic issues, I don't think that Theresa May has a particularly lasting domestic legacy, but you did see her try and carve things out. Ultimately, I think like her predecessor and probably like her successor, we have a run of Conservative Prime Ministers who will be remembered for the EU and specifically Brexit. The central difficulty of assessing Theresa May is that her political story, as it were, starts, you know, in the middle of a, an event that's already happened. She inherits Brexit from someone else. So we should probably talk about that person. Join us next time on Prime Minister and we'll be talking about the uh, golden legacy of David Cameron. You've been listening to Prime Ministerial with me, Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman. And me, John Elledge, author of The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. With special thanks to Caroline Crampton and Nick Hilton. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>